I hope you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 John chapter 1. Didn't see that coming, did you? Go and go to 1 John chapter 1. We are going to get to Mark 6 in just a moment. We are going to start with the writing of John. Who is John? Most of you probably know. John was among the 12 that Jesus called out and set apart. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, John is one of those men that we've talked about who had a front row seat to all the things that Jesus said and did. So for example, we can go back to where we were last week. The feeding of the 5,000. John was there. He was there when Jesus said, y'all feed them. That's what he said, right? Y'all feed them. And John with the other disciples didn't understand. John was there. He was one of the ones who received the bread from Jesus. And Jesus said, go and pass it out. So he started walking through the crowd, handing out bread and handing out fish. And it kept coming. He didn't only see that miracle with his eyes, he felt it with his hands. He was also among the crew that walked back through the crowd with baskets, picking up the leftovers. All that to say, John was one of those men who had a front row seat. He saw Jesus in the flesh. And it's with that in mind that I want you to hear what John wrote years later as he reflected back on that time he had spent with Jesus. 1 John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. John, who was there, who saw it, he writes this. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Oh, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's one of the most beautiful, honest, and awe-inspiring passages in all the Bible. If you want to argue about it, I'll argue that one. I love it. We read as John tries to put into words this reality. I saw God in the flesh. He was here. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. And that's not all. John recognizes this wasn't just a one-time event with no bearing on anything else. It wasn't just he saw him and he was gone, but that God came to do something. And John recognizes that through the work of the one with whom he had spent three years, that through knowing and trusting in him, that anyone who believes can have a relationship with God. So he says this, here's what what I've seen and heard, I proclaim to you. And if you believe, if you receive it, you can have fellowship with us. But know this, not only with us, 
but our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. John writes saying, you can know him also. You can have, you can take part in this fellowship. I wonder if you get goosebumps just thinking about, man, what if he preached that? He'd be more animated than I ever could be. I saw it. He was a witness to the very person of God. We can go back to John chapter 1 that we just read, written by the same witness. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who's at the Father's right side? That one who's at the Father's right side, he has made him known. I've seen him. It's an amazing testimony as John declares his faith. But as we read that, we must not forget who John once was and the men he hung out with. As we come to Mark chapter 6, we're reminded that John did not always see Jesus rightly. In fact, for quite a while, John missed the depth of who Jesus really was. And not just John, not just picking on him, this was the case of all the disciples. If you read the gospel, the story is riddled with examples of doubt and lack of faith. And it's wild because who had a better view than they did? They saw it all. Not only did they hear the sermons, but they got the the after-sermon sermon, right? They sat around at lunch and heard more. They'd even been given power themselves to go out and to heal and to cast out demons. But what we see in our passage this morning is that even then, even at this point, the disciples still struggled to truly understand who Jesus was. That even as Jesus was there, God in the flesh revealing himself, they still had a hardness of heart. And I don't know about you, but my gut reaction to this is just to shake my head. How could you be so slow to believe? But I'm also quick to recognize that we have been given so much in terms of knowing God. We have His completed word. They didn't have that. We have the testimony of the Old and the New Testament. We have the recording of the fulfillment of prophecy. We have the record of the death of Christ and explanations of what it accomplished. You know, over and over, we too can be slow to trust him. That's why it's important for us to return again and again to the scriptures, to keep seeing him as he has revealed himself. I think as we see the testimony of the disciples, she's come to us as a warning. Mark's going to tell us this morning that John had a hard heart. After all he's seen, after all he's heard. Should be a warning to us who sit in this room every week, doesn't it? Shouldn't it? It's an important warning. 
But this text is also encouraging because what we see in this text also is that knowing his disciples' doubts and knowing his disciples' fears and knowing their persistent hardness of heart. In this case, there's times when he does. In this case, Jesus does not rebuke them, but instead he goes to them. He goes to them in their fear. He goes to them in their doubts. And he reveals himself to them. With that in mind, I just want to invite you. We're going to see Jesus revealing himself to people who struggle with doubt and fear. So I want to invite you. Doubter. Fearful saint. Let's consider Jesus. And the way he reveals himself to those who are prone to wandering. Our text for this morning is Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 45 through 56. If you remember, we stopped a bit abruptly last week as we ended the feeding of the 5,000, and we pick up with the word that Mark liked so much immediately, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. So hope you'll follow along as I read the word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, and before him, to the other side, go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And Jesus saw that the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. I ask that God will add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Like I said, we start picking right off up where we left off. And if you can get yourself back into that scene that we've been in now for three weeks, it's been a long day. Probably felt like three weeks to them. The day that they had started trying to get away to find a place to rest. The crowds followed them. They went to a desolate place. Remember, Jesus tells the disciples, come with me to a desolate place and we're going to rest. But when they show up, thousands upon thousands of people have gathered in the wilderness. We're told that Jesus looked on them and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. And he showed his compassion by setting aside his rest and telling them the truth. We're told he taught them. And then at the end of that day, he fed them. That's the miracle we considered last week. The feeding of the 5,000 with just three pieces of bread and two fish. Not enough to feed me, much less my family. But Jesus multiplied it to thousands. Incredible display of his power. What the Gospel of John tells us that Mark 
doesn't say explicitly, is that when the people saw this, they did not see Jesus rightly. We talked about that last week. They saw that he could feed them. But they also saw that he could be the one who could lead them in overturning Rome. So John tells us, in John chapter 6, verse 15, that they were prepared to take him and to make him king. Not because they really understood who he was, not because they saw him as God, but they saw him as the one who maybe could lead them in their charge. So what we see as we come to our passage is that Jesus, recognizing the crowds, what they're trending towards, he knows it is time to get away. So we read in verse 45 that Jesus tells his disciples, leave. He says, immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. He says, hey guys, you know, if you're ready, whenever you're ready, take your time. Why don't you hop in the boat? No. He made his disciples get in the boat. It is time for you to leave. He stays and dismisses the crowd. And if we think about the situation, at first it, it, it reads to me backwards. If they're trying to take Jesus, shouldn't we put Jesus on the boat and send him away and leave the disciples to manage the crowds? Well, of course, we're going to see that Jesus has a plan. Others have suggested why this order of events, and perhaps, perhaps it's because Jesus knows that if his disciples hear what the crowds want to do, they may agree. And they may also join in, you are king. That's possible. But what we know for sure is that Jesus has a plan to reveal himself to these still struggling disciples. And so he puts them on a boat and sends them away. And then we're told in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up in the mountain to pray. He gets away to pray. And and we're not told anything about the content of his prayer. But we shouldn't miss the fact that he went away to prayer to pray. And not only did he go away to pray, but the Holy Spirit thought it necessary for us to be told. Jesus went away to pray. We don't know the content of his prayer, if this was a special situation, but we do know what's going on. We know the crowds are bigger and more persistent than ever. We also see that by and large, they do not recognize him. We were told... He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Maybe he pulls away to pray and to ask God to open their eyes. He knows that even his own 12 closest followers do not truly see him, and maybe he's there before the Father pleading, would you open their eyes? It also could be that Jesus being fully man as well as fully God is asking the Father to keep him faithful to his mission and not give in to the swell of popularity. We're just guessing. We don't know the content of his prayer. But what a great reminder of our need to depend on God. If the Son of God relied on prayer during his time on earth, how much more should you? After a day of serving thousands, He pulls away. He goes before the Father. So Jesus is on the land. 
I just want you to, let's get the picture in our minds. Sea of Galilee, Jesus has been teaching in this wilderness place. Now he's gone up onto a mountain, we're told, in this desolate area, and he's praying. All the while, his disciples are in the boat headed across the sea. We're told in verse 48, it was a rough trip. They were making headway painfully. (laughs) How was your trip? Painful, right? Things aren't going well. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, we've talked about the Sea of Galilee before. We we spent some time a couple months ago talking about the propensity. It's a bowl shape and the wind comes in. It can get really hostile really fast. We're told in Mark that the wind is blowing. The Gospel of Matthew says that the waves were beating against the boat. We have to imagine the disciples are tired and frustrated. Think about the day they've just had. I served, you ever been a server? And I served like 20 people today. No, I served 10,000 people today, right? And now it's the middle of the night. If we can just get to the other side, we can go to bed. But they just can't get there painfully making their way. So we see Jesus on the mountain, the disciples just painfully trying to make it through the sea. But did you notice what we're told at the beginning of verse 48? Where's Jesus? On the mountain. Where are the disciples? Way out in the sea. We're told in verse 48, Jesus saw them. He saw that they were making headway painfully. It's night, it's storming, and we're going to see in a minute, they've been gone for at least six hours. They're not right there on the shore. They are long gone. And yet we're told Jesus sees them. And he sees that they're making headway painfully. It's a clear reference to the omniscience of Christ, his sovereignty. He wasn't with the disciples physically, but he could see them, and he knew what they were up against. In the middle of a dark sea, and he saw them. And I don't want to say more than the text says here. But as I read that, I think about Psalm 139. That psalm of the inescapable presence of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Great promises, aren't they? That we are never outside of the care of God. I think we have an illustration of that here. The disciples are out in the storm, yet Jesus knows right where they are. Maybe that's the first miracle, the miracle of Christ's omniscience. But of course, there's another. He sees them. He sees that they're making headway painfully. We're told in verse 48 about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them, walking on the sea. Remember, they leave in the evening. And the text says it's now the fourth watch of the night. It's It's a Roman way of keeping time. Fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if they leave, let's say they didn't leave till 9 o'clock at night. 
I'm going to say it's the early part of the fourth watch. So it's 3 a.m. They've been out there struggling for hours. They're probably miles away. Yet Jesus sees them and he goes to them. And how does he get there? Walks on the water. You all went to Sunday school. You've heard the story. Don't miss the miracle, okay? Jesus walks on the water. We have a clear sign that Jesus has a different relationship with the natural world than you do. We've seen this already. We can go back to chapter 4. When Jesus is on the boat and the waves are crashing and the storm is coming, the wind is blowing, and Jesus says, peace. And even the wind and the sea obey him. Jesus has a different relationship with the natural world than you do. Jesus can do things that only God can do. Only God can speak and have waves listen. And only God can step out on top of the water like it's solid ground. Jesus is showing his deity that he can do things that only God can do. Why? Because he's God. Read the book of Job lately? Tough sledding sledding through some of it. We do get some chapters where Job just sits back and he considers the vastness of who God is. One of those chapters is Job chapter 9. And he's asking a series of questions. And Job asks this in Job 9 verses 7 and 8. He says, who can command the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea? Series of questions. And the answer to every one of them is the same. Only God. Who can tell the sun not to rise and it doesn't rise? Only God. Who can shut off all the stars, flip the switch and they're gone? Only God. Who creates and upholds the skies? Only God. And only God can trample on the waves of the sea. Or we could translate it, only God can march forth across the waves. Only God. Isn't it cool to see that long before Jesus ever stepped out on the water, Job said, this is something that only God can do. Only God marches across the waters. Same one who just hours before had passed out a few pieces of bread and fed thousands till they were full. Now he's walking on water. It's not only amazing to consider that he did it, but where he was going. I appreciated the way John MacArthur described it. He said, The creator of the waters and the wind set foot upon the choppy surface as if it was hard stone, and smooth glass, making his way to his disciples in their hour of despair. He went to them. Couldn't he have calmed the storm from where he was? Couldn't he have given them a safe passage from the mountain? Of course. But instead, we see that Jesus walks and he goes to them. He meets them where they are. And what we see is that he goes, not only so they can be saved from the storm, but he goes so that he can be seen. So he can be seen for who he is. Remember, he's dealing with disciples 
who have hardened hearts. Verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves. Here's Jesus looking at a crowd. He says, all they want is the bread. And he also knows this. My closest followers don't get it either. They don't understand. We're told he goes to them. We've seen their hardness of heart before, haven't we? A lot of parallels between this story on the Sea of Galilee and that night back in chapter 4. Remember what happens after Jesus speaks and the winds go still? We're told the disciples were afraid. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And we said back then when we looked at chapter 4, they still didn't fully get it. Their hearts were hardened, Mark says here. But I think we see something important about the heart of Christ. How tempting would it be to be frustrated about their slowness to believe? He has come. He's revealed himself. There are times when he rebukes them. We've seen that in chapter 4. But here what we see is he says, I will go to them and I will show myself to them. Aren't you thankful that when we're slow to faith, time and time again, God is patient and he continues to reveal himself to us, to show his faithfulness, to show his goodness. Mark says he goes to them and then he says something else that Starts as confusing, but I think when we understand it, it's unbelievably revealing. And maybe is at the very heart of this text. We read in the end of verse 48, he meant to pass by them. Meant to pass by them. I thought he was going to them. Why would he mean to pass by them? He knows they're struggling. He sees them. He's going to them, and now it's an unusual phrase, and translators and commentators have differing ideas and suggestions about what it means, but I think I am convinced that the answer is found in remembering that we have seen this phrase before. In fact, there are two times in the Old Testament when we're told that God intended to pass by his people. And both times, the purpose of his passing by was to reveal himself. So let's think back to Exodus chapter 33. Moses is having a conversation with God. God has told him, lead the people into Canaan. But because of their disobedience, I'm not going to go with you. I will send an angel. The angel will conquer all those ahead of you. But as your punishment, I'm going to withhold my presence from you. Moses hears this and he responds. Exodus 33, verse 15. Moses says to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? 
So we hear the request of Moses. God, of all things, do not remove your presence from us. God responds with compassion. The Lord says to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you. You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, this is a key phrase for us here, I will make my goodness pass before you, pass by you. And you will proclaim me before the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. You're familiar with this passage, probably. Show me your glory. If you were raised in the 90s, you hear third day right there. Show me. Um, <laughs> reveal yourself to me. God says, I will, but you can't bear it. So get in the rock and I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to pass by and you'll see part of me. So the plan is set and we read starting in verse 30, or excuse me, chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. What's he doing? He's revealing himself, showing his glory and proclaiming who he is. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For this is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Seminal moment in the Scriptures. God revealing himself in a way that he never has before, showing his glory in part to a man and proclaiming who he is. And this isn't the only time we see this. We go to 1 Kings chapter 9. There's a story of Elijah who feels alone and forgotten. God tells him to go up on a mountain, and God says, I will pass by you. It's the, it's the, the passage where he's not in the storm, and eventually comes in a quiet voice. God passes by, and Elijah recognizes God. What's the point? I don't think Mark is telling us that Jesus intended to sneak past. I think this phrase is used to convey an important message. Jesus intended to pass by them, which is to say, Jesus went out of the water that night so he could reveal himself in a new and significant way to his disciples. He went out there to be seen. They had hard hearts. I will show you who I am. I will pass by you. Doing what only God can do. How do they respond? The same way they responded when he spoke and calmed the sea. They respond with fear. Verse 49. 
when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Wouldn't you hope that the story ended with all that I've just told you, that they saw him and they fell on their faces and worshiped? But these are people, we remember. And when they see him, they don't think that is our Lord, the one we can trust, who has come to us in the storm. But they're shaking in their boots. And again, Jesus does not rebuke them. Instead, he offers words of comfort. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. What did God do? When he passed by Moses, he revealed his glory and he proclaimed who he was. And now we see Jesus as he comes to his disciples. He has shown them who he is. And he tells them to take heart. Don't be afraid. And in the middle of those phrases, it is I. Or we could translate it, I am. In the Greek Septuagint, it's the same phrase here. It's not used every time someone's identified in the Scriptures. It's a unique phrase used by God in Exodus chapter 3. I remember Moses has come to God and says, Okay, I'll lead your people, but what if they say, Who sent me? Who do I tell them I am coming on for? And Moses said to God, If the people come, excuse me, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. This is how God identifies him. Tell them that I am. That is my name. And I do not think it's a coincidence that in strategic times in the Gospels, Jesus reveals himself using the exact same phrase. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I am. He goes to his disciples in their time of need, not only to calm the storm, not only to save their lives, but to reveal himself, to show them who he really is. We're told in verse 51, they're amazed. But amazement coupled with unbelief. Verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What we have is Mark tying these miracles together. The disciples had seen these things. They had seen the feeding. They had now seen him walking on water. But still, there's doubt. And our reaction should be, in part, to be stunned by their unbelief. Their inability to see what's right in front of their eyes. But it should also serve as a reminder to us of how prone we are to seeing Jesus and yet not fully trusting him. Seeing his faithfulness and his power and yet still doubting or questioning his plan. Oh, I don't, I don't question the eternal plan, but this part of my life, this storm on this night. So it's the constant work of the Christian life to see Jesus rightly and fully. 
to recognize him as the one who has come to us and has proclaimed himself to us. He's not just the one who can provide bread. He's not just the one who can heal the sick. He is God, very God. The source of everything we need, our only hope in life and death. The disciples aren't there yet. Their hearts are still hardened. But Jesus continues to reveal himself to them. They didn't understand the real meaning behind the bread. They didn't see that he was the true bread. And what does he do when they don't understand? He goes to them and he shows himself to them. And you could say, but, but, but aren't there times where he just shuts them down and blasts them for their unbelief? Yes. But by and large, what God does with his people, he is slow to anger and abounding and love and mercy. He shows himself to us and he has shown himself to us. The question is, will we trust him? Will we believe in him? You may have noticed there's a whole other section included on the notes here. We're going to go through it quickly. It's one of these transition sections that Mark has put throughout the book where we're not talking about specific people and we're not talking about even specific situations, but he zooms out and just shows us how vast the popularity of Jesus is. We're told that as the disciples and Jesus arrive at the shore, people flocked to him. So we read in verse 53, they crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored up to the shore. And they got out of the boat and people immediately recognized Jesus. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in the villages and the cities or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Over and over, wherever Jesus goes, the crowds are flocking. And we see a certain level of faith. They believe in his ability to heal. And we also see his power and compassion as he heals many. But we know that many of them did not come believing who he really was or seeing him rightly. We know that Jesus did not come to be only the healer of diseases, and he came to give more than physical bread. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to die in the place of sinful men, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that all who repent and believe will be saved. He came so that we could know God, be in fellowship with God. Unfortunately, in America, in 2020, the name of the Jesus is widely known, and many people turn to him in time of sickness and want. But unfortunately, many do not see him for who he is. And when it comes to trusting them, their hearts are still hardened. As we see this passage this morning, we should be warned that Jesus is more than a miracle worker. We should also be comforted by his compassion, that he comes to those who are his and reveals himself, and that all who believe will be saved. We began with the testimony of John. 
John was one of the men on the boat that night, painfully working, terrified by the sight of Christ, hearing these words of comfort. And we don't know that it was on this night when his heart was softened, but we do know that time came. And his life was forever changed. He recognized why Jesus came and what was accomplished. So as we close, hear again the words of the disciple John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified and now he proclaims to us the eternal life which was with the Father. It's been manifest to us. I saw him. He walked on water. I saw him. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so our joy may be complete. Jesus came. We beheld his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now we can experience grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, the only God, but the one who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You can trust Him. and Have fellowship with Him. And your joy can be complete. Praise God for Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you came, that you lived among us, that you revealed yourself not just as we were in a rock and you passed by. No, you came in flesh and lived among us so we could see you. And then you died for us so that we could be brought to relationship with God. And God, we admit that more times than not, we have the same struggles as the disciples. We say and we think, I believe in Jesus, but would you remove that hesitation from our hearts? Would you open us up to believe in Jesus fully, to trust him fully? with our eternity, and with today. We thank you that you are a God who has come, who has dwelt with us. You were tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So now you can be our faithful and perfect high priest. And God, I pray that these realities would change not only our view of eternity, but our view of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Would you make us a people who trust you fully? Thank you for your church and the chance to be in your word together. Pray that you would use it to equip us for the week to come. Now as we stand and sing your praise, would you accept our worship in Jesus' name? Amen. Won't you stand with us?